Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Luke chapter 4, we're going to be picking up in verse 1 this morning. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. As we left off last week, we are looking at the genealogy of Jesus. And we also dealt with the passage right before that. I I hunkered down on uh, verses 20 and 21 again the other week, uh, talking uh, that we've been in for uh, some time, talking about uh, this time about Jesus's um, where Jesus stands in, and where we stand in regard to the Trinity. And we do believe in the triune nature of God, that, that God is represented in three persons, and yet they're all one. And if you did not get to listen to that study, I would encourage you to go back to listen to last week's study. Now, we do deal with that in depth, and I know that many people have questions about the Trinity today, and uh, I expressed why that's important to our growth and our faith and what we believe as Christians. But this morning, we're going to make the turn as we're going to begin to see Jesus getting ready now to move out into his ministry that he had as he walked this earth. Let's read this, and then we'll pray again. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning. And Lord, as we begin to dig into this passage, looking at Jesus, uh, Lord, would you teach us truths for our life this morning? Lord, I know that Jesus in this moment in his life was undergoing a trial, a temptation. And Lord, it just feels that daily we face many of the same things. Lord, you're going to show us in Jesus' life what you've done through him and why he did that and the success he had and why that's important to us. And yet, Lord, so many practical applications for our own lives in the daily fight that we're in, this daily struggle that we find ourselves in with the enemy as he comes and tempts us. And yet, Lord, in it all, may we see you. May our focus and our our eyes be set firmly upon you, not upon the devil, but upon you, Jesus. I ask, Lord, that now as we study this, that you keep us, protect all of us, and wherever we are in the homes that are tuning into this, Lord, and 
just surrounding us and keeping us from the distractions so that we could hear what you're speaking to us as your people, as your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people everywhere prayed. Amen. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. You know, Jesus, as we looked at now for the past several weeks, we've been dealing with Jesus's baptism, and now with his baptism behind him, his ministry is about to begin. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit, in this moment, that the third person of the Trinity led Jesus into the wilderness where now he's going to be tested by Satan for 40 days. And I find this interesting. Jesus has just gone through a spiritually powerful high point in his life, having been anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the ministry that lies ahead, and having had his Heavenly Father speak and confirm who he is, and and letting him know that he's pleased with his submission and doing his will in all things. But then suddenly he goes from this mountaintop experience, I like that term because we can relate to that, the mountaintop experience, He goes from that mountaintop experience into a spiritual wilderness, both physically and spiritually. So after this awesome moment of power at the Jordan River, Jesus is now led by the Spirit into a face-to-face confrontation with evil itself. Now, I think in different ways, but still in similar ways, most of us can relate to some degree of what's happening here with Jesus. You know, oftentimes we go from those spiritual mountaintop experiences right smack dab into the wilderness experiences. I can't tell you the number of times that I've personally found myself that right after I've enjoyed a really spiritually uplifting, a spiritually powerful moment whether it was at a conference or whether it was just something here at the church or whether just in my own relationship with Jesus personally, how the next day, the next moment, it seems, is that it's completely the opposite. I often find myself harassed by the enemy and and completely worn down by him. Ask Cindy. Ask my wife. She'd tell you that. You know, I I often say to her, even after a great experience in ministry here at the church in my life, you know, well, it's been a great day today. Can't tell you a number of times I said that on a Sunday. It's been a great day today. The Lord was, he was really present. He was really moving. It was just awesome. I guess the bucket of cold water is going to splash on me tomorrow. <laughs> that sounds pretty fatalistic, but you know what? Sure enough, oftentimes that's the case. That's exactly what happens. You know, I, I take guys sometimes when we go to men's conferences together or with me to a pastor's conference and I can see the Lord just lighting them up and they're so excited. And I, I mean, I had a guy tell me recently, he said, man, Pastor Randy, he says, thanks for bringing me. I wish I could just stay here. You know, that's kind of like the disciples. They wanted to stay with Jesus on the mountaintop. But what did they come down to when they came down from the mountain? They came smack dab into the face of the demoniac, and the boy that was possessed and 
the disciples that were down there, Matthew 17 tells us the disciples that were down there couldn't deliver them. And now Jesus is faced with her coming back down. I'll look at, at the guys and I'll tell them, yep, it was a mountaintop experience. Get ready. You're about to run into the demoniac on your way back down the mountain as you get to the bottom. And of course, I had to clarify that because a lot of these guys were married and I don't want them to think I'm talking about their wives. Their wives are not the demoniac, but the circumstances of life, it just seems like it follows these moments where we find ourselves in the wilderness. I can guess that most of you can relate to what I'm saying here. But if you're like me, when you have those experiences after that, your first inclination is to blame those day after awful spiritual attacks, spiritual oppression, and spiritual challenges, those day after awful spiritual experiences and lows on the enemy. I know that I often do. I imply that he's really attacking now. He's really coming after me now. He's really pulling me down now because of the spiritual victories that I've just enjoyed. Now, look, even though Satan is clearly involved, and I'm sure he's trying to pull us down, I have also learned over all the years of walking with the Lord that I, that I give the enemy way too much credit, way too much attention. And I, and I think that this passage sheds light on this truth. Think about it. It would be easy for Jesus to pin the blame on Satan for the awful spiritual experience that he's now about to face in the wilderness. These temptations, as he's confronted with these things, you know, and, and in light of the spiritually uplifting experience he already had, it'd be easy for him to blame it on Satan. It would be easy for Jesus to see God being in the baptism experience, but then to deny God has anything to do with the wilderness experience that he's now facing, that it's Satan and it's not the Lord. Don't we often say that when it comes to our difficult experiences in life, when we face those difficult moments in life, haven't you found yourself at times saying, this is not of the Lord? This is not of the Lord. What we're implying is that when things are going well, when we're being blessed, when we're having those good spiritual moments, well, that's of the Lord, but when we're not, it's not, this is not of the Lord. This is the enemy. But is this really true? Is that really true? You know, here in, in Jesus' situation, although Satan is clearly involved and he's clearly trying to pull Jesus down, trying to spiritually defeat him, the situation that Jesus finds himself in is not of Satan's making. Not at all. It's of the Lord's making. It's of the Lord's making. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who has led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan hasn't led Jesus here. Satan hasn't even come out to meet Jesus. Jesus has been led to where Satan is so he can be tempted. And so in reality, it's God's doing, not Satan's. And so this experience is of the Lord. And that's how it is in our lives as well. We need to realize that the situations that we find ourselves in where we are spiritually challenged or tempted or even attacked, that just because they are difficult, just because they are hard, just because they're uncomfortable, it does not mean that they are not of the Lord. Satan might clearly be involved. He might clearly be attacking. 
But I have learned that God is in control of what Satan is permitted to do in my life, setting limits and, and setting constraints on him, just like, like God did in Job's life. You remember the book of Job, right? Some of you guys were with us when we studied that on a Wednesday night. But if you know the book of Job, you know that, yes, Satan attacked Job, and yet God allowed Satan to do that, and he put limits and boundaries on Satan. Yeah, he gave him some freedom to upend Job's life, just as sometimes he gives him freedom to upend our lives. But all the while he's using it, God is using it for his purposes in our lives. Let me just say to you guys this morning, stop attributing everything to Satan. Stop doing that and start considering what it is that God might be doing through it all in your life. That's never more important than it is right now in the time in which we're living. Because I look on social media, I hear Christians, I, I hear pastors today. They're making this all about Satan. Look, I have no doubt that Satan is busy in our world, shaping our world for future things. But I'm just telling you, I don't think our focus needs to be there. Our focus needs to be on the Lord. And we need to be asking, what is the Lord doing with us? What is he teaching us? How is he growing us? What is he sharpening in us? What is the Lord doing in this? So as we look at Jesus, if you mark your Bibles, mark the fact that it is the Spirit of God who led Jesus into this encounter in the wilderness. But the next question that we need to think about is, what reason would God the Spirit have for leading God the Son, the other member of the Trinity, into this place where he can be tempted? I mean, doesn't Scripture tell us that God doesn't tempt anyone? Absolutely. Scripture is perfectly clear. God doesn't tempt. In, in fact, he, he is most certainly not tempting Jesus here. But he is leading Jesus to the place where Satan can tempt him. Well, you might be thinking, well, well, that's just a matter of semantics. If God is leading him for Satan can tempt him, then God is tempting him. No, it's not. You see, God never tempts anyone. It's against his character to do that. As James tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 13, James chapter 1 and verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he, he himself tempt anyone. James makes perfectly clear that God never, God never tempts anyone. But God does test us. God does test and that's what he's doing with Jesus. He's led him to this wilderness experience where although the enemy, where Satan will tempt him, God is really using it to test Jesus. Now, you might again suggest that that's just a matter of semantics. Test, temptation, there's no difference. You're wrong. There's a huge difference. Uh, a test is not the same thing as a temptation. It's not the same. Well, how can that be, you might ask? Well, well, the primary goal, it all has to do with a goal. The primary goal of a temptation is to get you to fail. The primary point of a temptation is failure. But the primary point, the primary goal of a test is success. It has to do with enabling you to succeed. A test is intended to show you where you stand, to give you a measure of how far you've progressed, to encourage you to strengthen what needs to be strengthened, and to take heart in areas where you're strong in, to keep you pressing forward to the ultimate goal, to prove you. To prove you. As a kid, I make no bones about it, I hated tests. 
I was not a test taker. I hated tests. But I do believe as, as, as I've aged and I've looked back on it and, and now having gone through college courses and everything else, the, the, the reason I hated tests wasn't just because I was, you know, we all get test anxiety, but beyond that, it was bigger. It's because I didn't understand the purpose of a test. I didn't understand the purpose of it. I thought that my teachers were just trying to do me in. <laughs> When in reality, they weren't trying to do me in. They were trying to help me. They wanted to show me how much I had learned and to help me gauge my progress and to make the corrections where corrections were needed so that I could overcome those weak areas and ultimately succeed. And that's how it is for all of us in regard to how God uses tests. He leads us into the wilderness where Satan might try to tempt us. But he uses that temptation to test us and to prove us, helping us to gauge our progress and to learn about our weaknesses so that he can work the corrections in us and lead us to greater spiritual success and victory. He uses the fiery darts that the enemy is shooting at us to destroy us and to cause us to fail. But God takes those fiery darts that the enemy is shooting at us to show us how far we've come as we face them. Now, listen, I, I think this is critical that you and I understand this and that we get the bigger picture, because if we don't, when those times of testing come, we're going to respond wrongly to them and, and, and we're going to respond wrongly to what's happening. And in the process, we're going to fall prey to the enemy's temptations. But if we realize what God's doing, realizing that he's ultimately in control, that he's led us there, that he's using it all for our benefit, it's going to make a big difference in how we respond to it all. I think James goes and makes that perfectly clear in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. James chapter 1, uh, you're going to think this is my favorite passage because I read it a lot. It is one of my favorite passages because I'm a pastor of a church of people who are constantly in trials and temptations. I just, I've, I've never been in a place where I've seen so many people dealing with so many heavy things. And, and I keep giving this verse as, as encouragement because it is. But listen to what James writes in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, trials, difficulties, temptations, all of it. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing, oh, did you hear the shift there? The testing, it's a trial that God is using as a test, that the testing, here's the purpose of the test, of your faith produces patience. The purpose of the test isn't to, to produce failure. The purpose of the test is to produce patience. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work. Perfection, God perfecting us, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What an awesome couple of verses. Yes, the enemy tempts us. Yes, the, the situations become awful trials in our lives, and yet God wants to use those to bring about the test so that he can perfect us, so that he can strengthen us, so that we can succeed. That's what he wants, so that we'll succeed. Now, back to the temptation that, that Jesus is about to face in the wilderness. God, God isn't using it all in the same way that he uses these things in our lives. He's not using it to test Jesus in order to prove anything to Jesus. Why would I say that? Because Jesus is the Son of God, right? 
He's sinless. He's God himself in the flesh. He's sinless. There's nothing in Jesus that needs to be tested as there is in us. He's rock solid spiritually. And here's where we need to address that age-old question that everybody asks because it's important to the answer as to why God is allowing Jesus to be tempted like this. Could Jesus have succumbed to Satan's temptations? Could he have been a real life for all you Star Wars fans? I do this rarely, but I couldn't help it with this one. Could he have been like a real life Anakin Skywalker, you know, a divine Jedi who who turns to the dark side and becomes the Darth Vader of the Bible? Sorry, that's kind of pithy, isn't it? <laughs> or whatever the word would be. But you get the picture. A lot of people think that that could have been the case. Is that the case? You know, some people suggest that since Jesus came in human flesh, that that was certainly possible, that he could have stumbled just as men stumbled, that he could have succumbed to the temptation of the enemy and in the process become even darker than Satan himself. And yet others point to the fact that Jesus was also 100% God. If he was 100% God, that since James 1 tells us that God cannot be tempted, it was impossible for Jesus to stumble and give in to temptation, right? So which view is correct? Could he have fallen because he was a man? Or because he was 100% God, does that mean he couldn't have fallen? Well, my answer is both. Both are true. You see, in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself and became vulnerable like us. And yet at the same time, even though he emptied himself, he never stopped being God. He never stopped being God. Therefore, he was unable to sin. So although his humanity made it possible for him to sin, his divinity made it impossible for him to sin. And I know that that sounds, that tension sounds completely confusing to our human minds, but I suggest that this is the reality that is given to us in Scripture. And like I said with our discussion last week on the triune nature of God, there are simply things about God that go beyond our human comprehension and we need to simply accept by faith what it is the Scriptures reveal to us about Him, even though we can't necessarily comprehend it all. Maybe God will one day explain it to us when we're sitting around the eternal campfire, and I'm not talking about hell, I'm talking about when we're just sitting around with Him, and we're, we're getting to fellowship with Him. Maybe He'll explain it to us, and we'll get it when we're with Him in the kingdom. I don't know. Maybe it just won't matter anymore. But for now, we stand by faith knowing that both were very possible. But the question, I think the bigger question that we do need to ask is, if it was impossible for Jesus to give in to the temptation, or if it was impossible, I should say, for Jesus to give in to temptation, then why did God lead him into it? Why was he being tempted by Satan? Or better question is, why was he being tested by God? What does it prove if there's nothing to prove to Jesus himself? If Jesus is sinless, can't enter into sin, what's there to prove to the sinless Son of God? Ah, the answer is in the proving. The answer is found in the proving. Not, it's about not proving anything to Jesus, but it's about proving Jesus to us. May I say that again? The test, that the temptations that will, Jesus will face, the test that God will be using them for, will not be to prove anything to Jesus, but to prove Jesus to us, to you and to me. 
God was using this situation to prove to us that Jesus is who he says he is and that he was able to do what it is he says he came to do. It was about proving that Jesus had the power in him to defeat and to overcome sin and to ultimately deliver us from it. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus referred to over and over again as the second Adam. The first Adam was the the man in the garden who failed and brought sin into this world. He's the one who represented all of humanity, who was weak and easily tempted, and thus he introduced sin into the world by failing to contain his own sinful lust, his own sinful self-will. But now here in this passage, Jesus, the second Adam, he's going to succeed where the first Adam failed. And God ordained this test, not to prove it to Jesus, but to prove to us that this Adam was strong enough and pure enough to reverse what the first Adam introduced. By proving Jesus, he is showing us that Jesus, the second Adam, can be trusted to deliver us from the bondage of sin. That the first Adam enslaved us to. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. Jesus was, in all points, tempted, as Scripture tells us, as we are, and yet without sin. In fact, Jesus, the second Adam, will be tested with the same three temptations, basically, which the first Adam succumbed to. The the same three temptations that I believe that are behind all the temptations that you and I face in this life. The temptations that are mentioned, the things that, 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 that are about us that cause us to be tempted. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. 1 John 2, 16 tells us what they are. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, that insatiable hunger for forbidden fruit, for the very thing that we can't have. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.